My first thought was it must have been an accident or something. I walked into the house, hollered Susan a few times, and as soon as I got in front of the first bedroom, I did a double take. I saw Susan lying on the floor. Did you know the dogs? Had you seen the dogs? I did not know them. I did not like them. And I walked out the front door, shutting it behind me, got in my car, did a U-turn. I mean, I have difficulty believing in myself that I would write the letter Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Monday, August 16, Robert Durst took the stand for the fourth day of Dick DeGaren's direct examination. After much anticipation, the jury finally heard Robert Durst's version of events on December 23, 2000, the night he claims to have found Susan Berman's body. Because of this highly anticipated testimony, we're going to report on the day's events in two parts. First, in this episode, we'll take a look at Robert Durst's account of his actions at Susan Berman's Benedict Canyon Drive home and at what he testified he did in the hours after he fled the house. We'll also examine the incongruities in his story when compared to statements he's made in past interviews. That's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. On Thursday of last week, Dick DeGaren left the jury with a cliffhanger. When Judge Wyndham adjourned the proceedings for the day, Durst had just described cruising down Sunset Boulevard and turning onto Benedict Canyon Drive, heading towards Susan Berman's house. On Monday morning, DeGaren picked up where he left off with Robert Durst's arrival at 1527 Benedict Canyon Drive. And as you got there, what did you first see? Well, first, there were cars parked in front of the house, so I could not pull off Benedict Canyon for a particular Benedict Canyon. I had to pull off Benedict Canyon parallel to Benedict Canyon. I could barely get the car off of Benedict Canyon. Did you recognize the cars that were parked in the driveway? No. And you were in your uh, Ford? Ford Explorer. Durst's voice was strained yesterday morning. As the day wore on, however, he appeared to regain his strength. Durst began by describing parking his car and making his way toward the house. 
When he got to the front door, he said there was something waiting for him. So um, you pulled your car parallel into the driveway and got it off of Benedict Canyon. Is that right? Correct. Then what did you do? I have the car walk south to where Susan's front door was. When I got within 20, 30 feet of the front door, I could see that there was a piece of paper attached to the front door. All right, when you saw that piece of paper, um, what did you next do? I walked over to the front door on the piece of paper. What did the, yes, what did the piece of paper say? It said, Bobby, I am doing my walk. Be back in an hour, Susie. And what did you think? I thought, well, she could have left an hour ago, meaning she'd be back real soon, or maybe even she already got back. But also, she could have left five minutes ago, meaning I'd have to wait an hour. So what did you next do? I rang, rang the bell and knocked a bunch of <coughs> You rang the del bell? I rang the bell a few times. And I knocked a few times. DeGarren drilled down on what Durst was able to see from where he was standing. All right, now we've seen some photographs of the, uh, some scene photographs. So where, when you're standing at the front door, what could you see without opening the door? Well, straight ahead were the two bedrooms to the right was the kitchen, and out the back of the kitchen was the back door, which was wide open. Could you see that from the front porch? Yes. Uh, could you see into the bedrooms from where you were? No, you could not see in the bedroom. Durst then explained how he was able to get into the front door. Well, Susan and I three or four months earlier and planned a similar trip. And Susan had canceled at the last minute. And she had decided that she didn't want me to have to wait if she was doing something. So she had overnighted me keys to the front door. So did you have a key to her front door? Two keys. What did you do? Well, after ringing the bell and knocking for five minutes, I unlocked the front door, walked in, and as soon as I got in, I could see the dogs. I don't remember if I saw all three of them or if it was just two of them. Where were the dogs? In the living space. And what did you do next? I decided I would see what, why the back door was open. I walked into the kitchen. When you walk into the kitchen, is that away from the bedroom? Yes. 
the jury has been presented with evidence that Susan's body was in a back bedroom. Thus, at this point in Durst's narrative, he walks away from Susan's body without noticing it, distracted, it seems, by the open back door. And then what did you do? I got to the back door, and I could not see the whole backyard from the back door. I did see that the backyard was full of dog do and needed to be cleaned up. But I carefully walked back to the end of the backyard. So did you walk out into the backyard through the kitchen door? Yes. And then what, what happened? Well, I walked as far as you could walk before the canyon wall stopped me from walking. When I turned around, I could see the whole backyard, and Susan was definitely not there. At this point, DeGarren asked Durst about Susan Berman's dogs. As we've reported, Susan Berman had three small dogs. Mella Kaufman, Paul Kaufman's daughter, who Susan took care of as her own, described the dogs as high maintenance, saying that they had, quote, gone kind of nuts and not in a cute way, end quote. She also indicated that Susan would generally keep the dogs in separate rooms. What had happened with the dogs that you had seen in the house when you first went in? They must have stayed in the house. I did not see them in the backyard. Did they bark at you? Yes, they always bark at everything and everybody. Unlike the affection that Durst has expressed for his own dog, Igor, this is how he described his relationship with Susan's dogs. Did you know the dogs? Had you seen the dogs? I did not know him. I did not like him. Durst then described his next move. So now you're in the backyard. Uh, you see that Susan's not there, right? Correct. What's the next thing you did? Well, I started hearing a whole bunch of honking coming from the front of the house. And I, my first thought was there must have been a, a, an accident or something. I walked to the north of Susan's house where she has a gate and one of those little latches that you can un un unlock the gate. So I un un undid the gate, walked to the front of the house, and I pretty quickly decided that there had not been an accident. But it did look like somebody had tried to make a U-turn on Benedict Canyon Drive because the cars were all pointed in different directions, like they were trying to get around something. Now, to clarify, you said you walked around to the front. Did you go through the house or on the passageway that was at the north side of the house? I don't know what the question did you walk through the house or did you walk on the pathway that's uh, at the door? I walked on the pathway. Okay. Now you're in the front yard or actually the front driveway? Correct. And what did you see there? At this point, Durst's focus returned to Susan's front door. He explained that the scene was now different than it had been when he first arrived. Well, I walked back toward front door. When I got to about 20, 30 feet 
from the front door, I saw that the front door was open and the piece of paper that had been attached to it was gone. Had you closed the front door when you came in? I did not think so. Do you know for sure? No. All right. So as you get to the front door, it's is it fully open? Is it slightly open? Slightly open. And the note is gone? The note is gone. Did you take the note off? No. With palpable anticipation throughout the courtroom, Daguerre then prompted Durst to continue his narrative. The next sequence of his testimony is so critical to this trial, so riveting to experience, and sometimes so nonsensical that we will present it with no interruptions and with just a few edits for concision. All right, what did you do next? I walked into the house, hollered Susan a few times, and figured she must, either she's still on her walk, or she's in one of the bedrooms. I walked down from the front door to the bedrooms. And as soon as I got in front of the first bedroom, I did a double take when I saw Susan. I saw Susan lying on the floor with her feet on her, on her back with her feet towards the front of the house. Could you see uh, whether she was awake or alive, or could you see? What could you see? She was just lying there. So what did you do? I shouted Susan a couple of times, and I quickly ran to the bedroom where she was. Her eyes were closed. I squatted over her, reached down, grabbed her by her upper arms, and lifted her up. Now, how high did you lift her? Six inches. What, what, was she cold to the touch? Was she warm to the touch? Could you tell? I put my hand over her face. I might have left that out to see if she was breathing, see if I could feel breath, and it felt cold. Then I grabbed her by her arms and lifted her up. Her head just hung down, and I could see that her hair was in some kind of liquid. What, what, what was going through your mind? What did you think? What was going through my mind was that she had fallen backward. She had fainted or something, fallen down and hit her head. I also thought maybe somebody hit her in the back of the head. I did not imagine at that time that she had been shot. So. What, what did you next observe? I wanted to go check the bathroom to the bedroom. I wanted to check the other bedroom. If somebody had done this to Susan, maybe he was still here. 
I wanted to call 911. And that is what I did. Let me stop you. Before you get there, did you see what the liquid was that her head was in? I decided it was blood. When you lifted her by her arms and her head uh, fell back, what, this, was her body stiff or not? Not that I'm aware of. All right, you go to the bathroom, um, and then what do you do? I did not go in the bathroom. I decided the first thing I should do is call 911. All right, so what did you do? I ran the few steps it takes to get to the kitchen table. And I tried the telephone, but it was dead. And when you say it was dead, what do you mean? There was no sound. What kind of telephone was it? It was a landline phone, but you had there was no cord between what you held in your hand and the charging station. So <clears throat> when you tried to use the phone, it was dead. That is, the, the cordless phone was dead? It was a cordless phone. That's the right word for it. All right, so what did you do then? I put it in the charger tried pushing some buttons on the phone and it stayed dead. It stayed dead? It stayed dead. And then I took the wire, the electric cord, and went to, to the charger. And I was just about to plug it in when I heard voices. You heard voices? Yes. Where did you hear the voices coming from? When I looked up, I could see through the foyer window that there were people, half a dozen people, walking past Susan's house south. When you say there were half a dozen people walking past Susan's house south, do you mean on Benedict Canyon, or were they in the driveway, or what? They were walking on Benedict Canyon. All right. What did you do? Well, my first thought was, if somebody had done this to Susan, and one of those people walks in the front door. I'm having difficulty hearing you. I don't know if a jury is. They're having, they're having difficulty hearing you. Well, let me take a minute. You heard voices. There were, you looked through the foyer and you saw out on Benedict Canyon some people walking south. What did you think? I thought, I don't want those people to see me here. Why not? Because someone had done me. By then I started thinking someone must have done two shoes and one cause her to die. So what did you do? I waited 10, 15 seconds 
So the people walked out, and I walked out the front door, shutting it behind me, got in my car, did a U-turn, went south on Benedict Canyon, figuring I would go to a payroll and dial 911. Did you do that? I got to a payphone just before getting to Sunset. I picked up the phone, dialed 911, and a lady's voice asked for my name. I decided I did not want to give them my name. I was thinking of giving them a phony name. very recognizable that even without a name it would be me who would be doing the reporting. So I decided instead of calling 911 I would send the police a letter telling them that Susan was dead in her house. Alright, what did you do next? sure what I did next. Why are you not sure? Why am I not sure? I'm not sure because I'm not sure. Somehow I had pen and paper. First, why I'm not sure is because I had had migraine headache the night before and had taken a Percocet. That tends to make you feel groggy and hungover the next day. So were you groggy and hungover from the Percocet? Yes. Were you scared? <coughs> I don't think so. Did you, did you keep uh, a pen and paper in your car? I, yes, I had pen and paper in the car, but I know I did not have envelopes, and I definitely did not have stamps. So I must have bought an envelope and a stamp somewhere. Do you have a clear recollection of doing that or not? No recollection of it at all. In the uh, police photographs of Susan's desk, there is a box of plain white envelopes. Do you know if you got one of those envelopes? I don't remember doing so. So you don't remember getting one of those envelopes? No. Or a stamp. Do you remember getting a stamp? No. Do you know where you went to get the envelope and stamp? No. So what did you do then? Well, I must have got the envelope and stamp and wrote a note to the police and mailed it somewhere. What did you put on the envelope? Beverly Hills Police. And on the inside, on the note? Cadaver, 1527, Benedict Canyon Drive. You've seen that uh, or copies of that letter in evidence here 
did you write that letter? Yes, I did. Did you lie about it later? Yes. Did you lie about it for years? Yes. Why? Because it's a very difficult thing to believe. I mean, I have difficulty believing it myself that I would write the letter and have not killed Susan Berman. All right, so back to the sequence of events. Do you know where you mailed the letter from? No. Where did you go? Do you have a recollection of where you went in your car? <clears throat> I decided that I wanted to get far away from Los Angeles. I decided to go to San Francisco. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. DeGuerin tried to get Durst to address some of the more obvious questions that the jurors might be asking themselves. He asked about a gun. Bob, did you have a gun with you? No. Did you have a gun in California? No. Either in Northern California or in Southern California? No. Did you have a gun in New York? No. Um, you had traveled on the plane from uh, New York to San Francisco before you went to see Susan. Um, did you have a gun on the plane? <laughs> no. And about Susan's house keys. Now, what did you do with the keys to Susan's? I have no idea. Did you have them with you when you got on the plane? I don't know. And about the airport. All right, at, at the airport, what did you do at the airport? I drove to the terminal. I, I might have turned the car off. I might have left it running. I took my bag. I had taken with me to Los Angeles. I got out of the SUV and left it at the terminal and went to the first gate, gate that I came to, and bought a ticket to New York. Now, Bob, uh, do you know exactly where you left the car? Was it in the parking lot? Was it at a uh, no, beside the, car, the terminal? It was right up at the terminal. Do you know if you even turned the car off? Don't know. And about his state of mind on the flight home. What was your state of mind? I was trying to decide if 
if anyone would believe that I killed Susan Berman because I had no reason to kill Susan Berman. When you say you had no reason to kill Susan Berman, what do you mean? I mean just that. Susan <clears throat> Susan had been murdered. Someone must have had a, a reason, a motive, whatever, to kill Susan Berman. And I had no reason to kill Susan Berman. And finally, about his possible motive. Did you have any motive to kill Susan Berman? No. Was Susan blackmailing you? No. Joining us now to discuss this pivotal day of testimony is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Thanks for having me. So, Charlie, we focused this episode on what Bob says he did in the moments after he arrived at Susan Berman's house on December 23rd, 2000. What did you make of Bob's story? There are different elements that I find fascinating, but... I also was struck by the parallels between his account of getting to Susan's house and what he said happened in Galveston with Morris Black. In in Galveston, he said that he gave a key to his apartment to Morris Black. And here in Los Angeles, he said that Susan, this very security conscious person, sent him two keys, not one, but two keys to her house in uh, Los Angeles. Let's talk a little bit about his convoluted story about looking in through the window, walking through the house, out the back door, confronting a lot of dog poop in the backyard, going up a side alley, hearing commotion out the front. Talk a little bit about that, will you, Charlie? All of his stories and his anecdotes are just larded with detail. He gets in the house and the yapping dogs are not all over him. And when he walks outside, they don't seem to follow him. Uh, But from what we know about these dogs, they were really high strung. It's an odd story, which I'm not sure does it hold together. Brittany, what stuck out to you in Bob's testimony about his discovery of Susan's body and the moments before that? There was obviously so much anticipation leading up to this moment. And I think, at least for me, I was expecting, rather than this convoluted scene, that he was going to lay it out pretty simply. But what we ended up getting was this farcical, you know, many entrances and exits. And what seemed implicit, although he couldn't say this, of course, because of the timing of everything that he was laying out, you know, that he comes in and there's a note and he comes back and there's no note, that there's this sort of masked car cartoon villain that he can't see that's running around behind him that we're supposed to understand that there's the possibility of this shadow figure that is creating just enough room for reasonable doubt in order for him to play this hapless, well-intentioned friend. Charlie, during the testimony, you texted me something, and I'd love for you to share it with our listeners. I thought you were kind of spot on, and what Brittany said just now reminded me of it. You suggested that perhaps Robert Durst has developed his story from watching the character Richard Kimball in the movie The Fugitive. 
Yeah, Bob is suggesting that first, when he called Susan from Bakersfield to let her know that he was going to be late, he alluded to the fact that Susan seemed to be talking to another unnamed person who was in her home. And then so many hours later, he pulls into Los Angeles, and it seems that he was hinting that maybe that person is who killed her. So it reminded me of, you know, when Richard Kimball, the protagonist in The Fugitive, he was accused of killing his wife, but he was looking for the one-armed man. Also, I was struck by the preposterousness of six people walking down Benedict Canyon Drive. Now, having lived in L.A. for close to 25 years cumulatively over the course of my life, I know how ridiculous that is. But we've heard a lot of testimony about how busy and how unwalkable Benedict Canyon Drive is. So for Bob to say that he saw six people casually walking down the street after some sort of commotion out in front of Susan's house was just a head scratcher. Yeah. And the cars come whipping around that turn just just before uh, Susan's house. I know when I went to visit that house, I was very nervous about walking on the side of the road. And then, yes, the idea that there was a note on Susan's door when Bob got there that said, out walking, be back in an hour. It was like Bob was writing his own fan fiction. Let's discuss for a moment how Bob described the things he did when he discovered Susan's body. Brittany, what were you struck by in hearing Bob describe the moments after he saw Susan's body? I was struck by this moment that seemed like, is he going to get emotional about this? But then what he described was so odd. He walks over to her. He does a double take. He squats down over her. He reaches down, grabs her by her upper arms. Now, if she's not dead, that strikes me as a rather odd way to try to pick somebody up. He puts a hand over her face to see if she's breathing rather than checking her pulse. And he sees this liquid, which he understood to be blood. Charlie, let's talk for a moment about Bob's departure from the house and his journey back north to San Francisco and then his flight out. Tell me some of the things that struck you about that part of Bob's story. Bob says that he drops off a letter and then drives, what is it, 470-some miles to San Francisco so he can hop a a red-eye from San Francisco at 10 p.m. to New York, where he arrives on the 24th the next morning. But his explanation has to dovetail with some other data points we have. The medical examiner have determined that Susan was killed sometime between 10.30 p.m. on the 22nd and 9.30 a.m. on the 23rd. So when was it that Bob left Bakersfield and drove two hours to Beverly Hills? I think we can look forward to the prosecution grilling him on his timeline here. Yeah, my head spins to think of the many ways that John Lewin will approach cross-examining Robert Durst. There's a lot more to come on Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. In our next episode, we're going to complete our exploration of day four of Robert Durst's testimony, and we'll be back with more discussion with Brittany Bookbinder and Charlie Bagley about Robert Durst's narrative. Brittany, Charlie, thanks again for being with me. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll look forward to having you all back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. 